Thank you. It's, um, it's a pleasure to be back here again. I got asked this morning how am I feeling. And I always have joy when I come and share the word with you guys. Um, I was actually here a couple of weeks ago, and I shared a little bit about an overseas trip that I had recently to the UK. There were 15 of us that left from Adelaide, and we went over to Oxford, and we had some evangelism training um, with Ravi Zacharias Ministries. But before going to Oxford, we, um, a handful of us went to Birmingham, and we stayed there for four days. And we were invited by a local organization there called Chaplaincy Plus. And with them, we did some joint street mission, but we also taught and trained their volunteers on workplace ministry. I've got some photos there um, from that. But while we were in Birmingham, um, Merle, the wife of the main speaker that came with us, she got quite ill. We went to the local hospital, and she found out that she needed to have surgery, and it needed to be pretty immediate. And by the grace of God, the procedure was a success, and although she was bedridden for several days, she was ultimately able to join her and her husband um, with us in Oxford. But what I found really interesting was our hosts at Chaplaincy Plus. Steve and Kim were the main guys that were there um, with us. They were remarkable. Though they were facing the prospect of this disintegrating program, the, the Aussies were coming to Birmingham. They'd, they'd made this big deal out of this thing. Venues booked, sponsors were in place. The marketing is being done, people are going to turn up. But the program's disintegrating. They showed great love and kindness as we all navigated um, into this uncharted territory. The days that followed the surgery for Merle, she needed to stay reclined. She wasn't able to stand up and move around, which would have meant a train trip or a bus ride from Birmingham to Oxford. That was impossible. So our host, Kim, graciously offered to drive her from Birmingham to Oxford. He gave up his entire Sunday, and she was there in the back seat of the car um, being kept flat um, to get her to Oxford. And each time I think of these guys, their heart and generosity, I feel the same way that Paul felt when he penned and opened his letter to the church at Philippi. We read at the beginning, chapter 1, 3 to 5, I thank my God every time I remember you. In my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Our friends in Birmingham are partners in the gospel. Even though they were halfway across the planet, these guys were strangers. We only met them a day or two earlier. But there was such a sense of familiarity with them. And there was an undercurrent of being amongst family with them. And their efforts, the things that they did, it's something I would only expect from family anyway. How is that so? someone on the other side of the planet, the strangers. How is it so that they could be like that to us? Paul had a soft spot for, in his heart for this group of believers in Philippi. Of all the letters that he wrote, this one, Philippians, is one of the most personal, and he, he conveys such a joyful spirit. The contents are more of a preventative or cautionary tone. The letter's not written as a rebuke, and it's not in particular, addressing anything 
that's going on in the church as we see in other letters. No, he had a soft spot for these guys. The church of Philippi was founded around about AD 50, and we read about that in Acts, 50, uh, Acts 16. The early converts were a mixed bag of people. First there was Lydia, a businesswoman. She was a Gentile, and she'd partially converted to Judaism, but upon hearing the gospel message, she believed, and she was baptised, and she opened up her house to Paul and his companions. Then there was a slave girl who had the demons exercised out of her, which ruffled the feathers of her masters because the masters saw the slave girl as their blank check. She was able to tell the future. Um, seeing that their gravy train had ended, these masters kicked up a stink, which ultimately culminated in Paul and Silas being thrown into jail. And then that's where we had the conversion of the jailer and his family. And these early converts came together. They were a diverse, unlikely group of people. But they came together and they found unity. And they were then called partners in the gospel. From that first day, they came together until when the letter was written, which was about 10 years later. And this passage that we're going to be looking at today in Philippians, Paul is reminding them of how it was that they were able to put aside their differences and come together to be called partners of the gospel. And he's encouraging them to just keep on doing that, keep on with that. And so there's three things I'm going to pull out of that passage that we'll be looking at. Firstly, as Christians, how are we called to be united? Secondly, what's the secret ingredient that we need to sustain unity? And how can we learn from Christ's example? And how can that challenge us as believers to live in unselfish unity? A necessary ingredient to unity is having a shared purpose. I work in startups. And in the early stages of a company, even when something is just an idea, you have a couple of people that come around and they coalesce around this idea. There's shared goals, there's a shared purpose there. There's excitement about delivering a solution to a problem that the world is facing. This shared idea, this, this common purpose is the glue that brings these people together. And then as a result of this shared understanding, they're together, they're going to do something about that. There's some actions, there's some things to be done. It basically looks like, since we have a shared purpose and a common ground here, well, let's use that and let's produce an outcome by doing these things. And verses 1 to 4 of our passage in Philippians 2, Paul's using a similar technique to make an appeal to the church. Since we are believers and we share a common ground, that's in verse 1, then make my joy complete by doing these things, which is verses 2 to 4. And before we look more closely at those things that he's talking about, I just want to clarify the use of the if in verse 1. So it says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. 
By using if, Paul is not saying, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and I'm not too sure that you do. He's not saying it with doubt. He's not expressing doubt. Rather, he's pretty certain that they do have those things. I've got a passage up, Philippians 1, 6. He opens the letter with this, being confident that God began a good work in you. He's confident that they have these things. But Paul's use of the if in verse 1 is to produce a cumulative effect. It's a rhetorical way to make a statement. And he's using it to build a case that's going to lead to an inevitable conclusion. So I've got an example of how I might use that to my son. I might say, did I buy your clothes? He would say, yes. Did I wash your clothes? He would say, yes. Did I dry your clothes? He would say, yes. Then it shouldn't be too hard for you to put your clothes away. <laughs> and the way that I've structured that, Paul's using the same way. If your clothes were bought, if your clothes were washed, if your clothes were dried, then put them away. He's not, he's not saying with doubt that these things didn't exist. He's saying with certainty, these things exist, but I'm accumulating here to make an argument. And so he's doing that in verse 1. And so we could read the if just like it's since. Since, um, since you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, since you have comfort from his love, since you have common sharing in the spirit, since you have tenderness and compassion. He's accumulating that. And it's leading to an inevitable conclusion. And he's establishing the common ground in verse 1. It's the thing that's bringing us all together. That common ground is being united with Christ. Other translations might say encouragement or consolation in Christ. The NIV says with Christ. Um, what does in Christ, with Christ mean? We'll have a look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Being in Christ touches on every aspect of what God has done for us. And it's a reminder of our new identity. Since we have placed faith in Jesus. To be in Christ means we've accepted his sacrifice as payment for our own sin. To be in Christ means God no longer sees our imperfections. He sees the righteousness of us through his son. Only in Christ is our sin dealt with, our relationship with God restored, and our eternity secured. Jesus prayed this before his death about his followers in John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. Now he's saying, my prayer is for those who will believe as a result of the message that the disciples will pass along. So Jesus is talking about all of us, believers. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also in us, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and, have, and you have loved them even as you have loved me. 
Jesus prayed before he went to the cross that his followers would be one. He prayed for unity, that his believers would unite together as one another. And that by doing so, we would show the world there's something different going on here. And that would be an expression pointing towards Christ. So the common ground we all have is we're united with Christ. And by being united with Christ, we are united together. We have special bonds to one another because of our relationship with Christ. We also have obligations and responsibilities to follow Christ's direction and example. Our attitudes towards one another, these are important. And verse 1 goes on to elaborate that the reality of our oneness with Christ is based on being encouraged, but there's some other aspects there in verse 1. And these other aspects are the resources that God has given us which allow for this unity to occur. So we have our common ground, we're united with Christ, but we have comfort and encouragement of love. Paul's talking about God's love that's towards us, which would prompt us to come together in common action, which should mean we should be avoiding divisive behaviour. We have common through the Spirit, this fellowship produced by the Holy Spirit. This should stimulate a practical sense of unity. We've been made one by the Spirit, and we're all partners with Him and with each other. We're enabled to live in unity with each other through the Spirit. And the existence of tenderness, compassion amongst us, well, this is something that should just be a normal and expected thing of having unity. And we're able to have that by being united with Christ. And this is exactly what I saw displayed by our friends in Birmingham. They're united in Christ, just as I am, just as we all are. And there was just this sense of, this is familiar, this is family that they're uniting in Christ along with mine, it produced a sense of tenderness and compassion amongst each other. We were able to just roll with the punches of what was going on. We have a common ground, we're in Christ, but verse 2 goes on to describe what that actually looks like, corporately, to an outside, behavior, to an outside observer. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. In verse 1, Paul used the four rhetorical if statements, um, saying, since all these things are true, united in Christ, comfort from his love, common sharing in the spirit, tenderness and compassion, then the inevitable conclusion is, display these attributes in response. Be like-minded, have the same love, be one in spirit and one of mind. There's a pairing there in verse 1 to verse 2 of the four things that are raised in verse 1 is paired up with four things in verse 2. If we as Christians in the body displayed all of those attributes, oh, sorry, we'll go back one, um, would it be possible for us to fragment if we, were, if we were expressing those attitudes in everything we did? Paul's stressing that as followers of Jesus, 
We should be of the same mind, being like-minded. Not meaning that we have to agree on every single thing, but we need to have the same mindset, the same attitude, the same approach to life. And it's that mindset, that attitude, that approach that has to mirror what was in Christ. Being united in Christ, we work together for the same purposes rather than seeking areas of disagreement or division. And this was something that was really important to Paul. He actually mentions this concept of same mind, oneness, similar mind um, throughout every chapter of Philippians. And I've got some up there. Philippians 1.27, in the one spirit. Philippians 3.15, if you think differently, then his prayer is that God will make that clear for you in that if there is different thoughts, it should be coming back to the same mind. And he's pleading to be of the same mind in the Lord about some disagreement or something that's gone on um, there within the church. How do we be of one mind? Well, one way is to read and reflect on the word by absorbing and understanding the passages that are in there, memorizing, meditating on them. God's given us an amazing brain and a capacity to hold large amounts of information. What we look at and listen to is going to shape us. So we have to be careful of the things that we're dwelling on in order to get to one mind. There are all sorts of things out there in the entertainment industry that can provide images of things that aren't helpful or positive. There is a secret ingredient, however, that's required for unity. To, in order to have this one mind that Paul is talking about, there's a secret ingredient that we need. And before I talk about that, I want to touch on the Genesis reading at the Tower of Babel. Genesis 1.11, 1-4. Now the whole world had one language and common speech. People moved eastward. They found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone, tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. There was great unity and oneness shown here, right? The whole world had one language. They came together around some technology that they'd developed. Baked bricks instead of stone. Tar for mortar. Fantastic idea for a startup. Now we can build structures that are that are more sound than anything we've been able to build before, more solid than what we could do before. Before we had to take stones that were oddly shaped and try and fit them together, but that limited what we could do. But we have this technology. There was unity and a shared purpose in this project, right? But what was their purpose? I put a riddle up and see if you know what word this is talking about. Everyone has it, God hates it, cannot be hid. Men despise it and others, it will take you down. Beating it brings honour and you can change it. Pride. Right, pride. In verse 4 of that Genesis passage, so that we can make a name for ourselves. It's talking about pride here. 
mankind, man, mankind came together, unified, to do something, but to do something that will glorify themselves. And in doing so, create an environment that didn't need God. They thought what they were doing was amazing. What did it look like from man's perspective? Here's a skyline of New York and Tokyo. New York at the top, Tokyo at the bottom. And this is what it looks like to mankind. And it looks amazing, right? Look at what we can do when we unify the things that we can build. But what is this perspective from God of these things? Here's New York and Tokyo as seen from another perspective. This is how God sees it. It doesn't look so wondrous and impressive, and actually all you see is creation. You don't see any of the buildings that man has made. And we even see there in Genesis 11.5, it says the Lord came down, as if to say God's got to get down to ground level just to see what all the fuss is about, about the things that we celebrate. If pride's involved, anything we build might look amazing and fantastic, but really it ultimately is just inferior. Which brings me back to the secret ingredient that's required to be of one mind that Paul is talking about, the opposite of pride, humility. Humility is required to maintain any unity. There's a startup, at the early stage, everyone is together, they're unified. And it's pretty straightforward. People come together around that idea, there's only a couple of people. But then as more people come into the mix, things get a bit funny. You've got the founders, they started. Then you've got investors, then you've got employees, and you've got customers, and so forth. And each of these different people have competing interests. And what's at the heart of their interests? It's pride. Each wants to make a name for themselves, and each is asking, what will I get out of this? And so it becomes incredibly difficult to navigate as a company gets bigger. And for those of you that have worked in large companies, you'll know, you'll know what this is like. There's so much headwind within the company that's introduced just from the pride of others that the company really struggles to achieve the things that it exists to. It puts so much energy in but gets uh, so little out. Unity and pride is not what Paul is talking about here. Unity and humility is what Paul is talking about. When we are humble, we don't have to agree. When we are humble, we don't have to have the same opinion to get along. When we don't insist on holding on to what's rightfully ours, we can still get along just fine. We can be of the same mind, even if we don't agree. And it's because we can submit and humble ourselves if we have the mind of Christ and the same mind of Christ and it was Christ that humbled himself on the cross. And even if there is disagreement, and that disagreement might cause me to part ways with someone, we can still do that with humility if we take on the mind of Christ. Back to our Philippians passage, Paul gets specific in verses 3 to 4. Sorry, we can go back... Verse three to four. Yeah. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather than humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, 
but each to the interests of others. Paul calls us to find our identity in that which unifies us, rather than that which divides us. We must first find our individual identity in Christ so that we can be unified in community. And he's describing things that are the opposite of the mind of Christ, selfish ambition and conceit, regarding ourselves as better than others, looking only to our own interests and disregarding the interests of others, arrogantly looking down on other people. All these behaviours, they're the opposite of Christ. And if people insist on getting their own way, that's not being like-minded. It will lead to discord. These issues are present in our relationships within the church and outside of the church. But they don't have to be the final word. We can change our mind about what's happening. And we can do that with humility. We should be concerned not only about our own interests, but the interests of others. So does that mean we need to drop everything all the time, we can't focus or attend our own needs? No. Paul's not saying forget about all of your own interests, but he's saying look to the interests of others as well. Take a broader picture of this. Jesus, during his ministry, had needs he had to attend to. He was tired. Sometimes he withdrew from the crowd to stop, rest, pray. Looking after your own needs is not being selfish. It can be helpful. But likewise, in the opposite way, being others-focused could actually have a selfish motive. There might be some here who struggle to say no to projects and serving. And what might outwardly look like humbly serving others above themselves is really feeding an inward desire to be appreciated, valued, noticed. This too isn't what this passage is asking for. And if, if that is you, I'd encourage you to really take stock of verses 5 to 11 that we'll look at shortly. That only in Christ and in what he has done can you really truly find your identity. Paul's asking us not to be driven by things that seek only to prop up our own reputation. Rather, count others higher value than ourselves. Paul isn't saying that we should ignore the good things given to us. All the plans laid out by God that move us forward individually. But to Paul, the idea that God's family will be dominated by ego, personal ambition, this is incomprehensible. That's not what partnership in the gospel looks like. When we're united with Christ, our lives are caught up in his passion and purpose. And folks, we can't do this unless we get that right. This brings us to verse 5. The best way that Paul can encourage us to live in humility and so that there is true fellowship in unity well, he's saying, let's look at an example of Christ. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul wants us to set Jesus as the bar. Jesus is the example. He's the perfect model to show us what one mind looks like and what humility looks like. Verse 5 is setting the tone for verses 6 to 8, which are going to be our practical application. Paul presents the ultimate act 
of humility, never to be equaled again in history. Jesus gave up his glory, his divine prerogative. These things were his right. Instead, he takes on human flesh. And if that wasn't bad enough, it was pushed to breaking point, he obediently goes to the cross to show God's love for us. Verse 5 tells us what humility looks like. It's doing what Jesus did. To think about his attitude that he had towards humble, humbleness and servantness. Attitude is an abstract thing. It's intangible. An attitude means nothing until it's physically expressed. And is in this example of Christ that we're about to look at, we'll see how his actions demonstrate his attitude. If you have your Bibles open there, how, is, um, how are verses 6 to 11 printed in your Bibles? I don't know how the online ones will look. Anyone have a passage open? Yes? Yeah? How, how is it printed? Is it different to the rest of the text? It's indented in there. And so usually when that happens in our Bible, something is being quoted. And it's thought that verses 6 to 11 are an early hymn or a poem that was in circulation around the early church. It's possible Paul even wrote this poem. We can't be sure. Um, but either way, it was something he felt was worthwhile quoting into the context of this passage. And it's also remarkable because it, it shines some light in what the thinking was in the early church in terms of what they believed about Jesus just some 25, 30 years after his death. So let's look at verses 6 to 8. This is often referred to as the descent because Jesus descended from being God to a humble servant. So Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider quality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In verse 6, it's saying Jesus was truly God before he became a human person. And as an equal to God, he didn't selfishly grasp onto that or tightly hold onto his position. Instead, he was willing to leave his high place in heaven and give, him, give himself over to serving our needs. Although he set aside those rights and privileges of being God, he still remained God. Verse 7, Jesus made himself nothing. Other translations say he emptied himself. And it's not saying he lost his deity. He didn't empty himself of God, but he emptied himself of his glory. The nature of being a servant meant putting aside his place and taking the lowliest of places to become of human likeness. Jesus didn't become like man. He became man. He got tired. He needed to eat. He felt emotions. He wept. He was tempted. He was truly human. But he was also God. 
and for God he became a man, and that would have been humbling enough. But he was willing to go even further. Jesus could have come to this earth, the position of the king, which is what he was, instead he took the role of a servant. The creator chose to serve creation. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus descended even lower, and in verse 8, not just any death, humiliating death on a cross, the death of unimaginable pain and utter shame. There's a verse in Mark 10 that says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus made a choice. In verse 5 of our Philippians passage, Paul says, have the same mindset of Christ. He's asking us to make a choice. Just like Jesus made a choice in verse 7 of the passage, he made himself nothing. Becoming a man was humbling. Taking the nature of a servant was more humbling. Jesus went further, humbled himself to the extent of being willing to die as a criminal on the cross. And if you think about it, that choice that Jesus made, it wasn't a temporary choice. It wasn't as if he was thinking, well, I'll die, that'll suck, but I'll be raised again in a couple of days and I'll be back to where I was. No, his choice had eternal consequences. He's taken the form of man and he's still in that form, though in a glorified body. When Jesus was resurrected, he still had the wounds and scars. We see that in John 20 in his encounter with Doubting Thomas. When Jesus ascended, he had the form of man. We see that in Acts 1. And we see the imagery in Revelation 5. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Heaven was rejoicing because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, nation, people. Even today, Jesus looks like he is slain. The choice Jesus made had lasting consequences. By presenting Jesus' humble obedience, Paul is painting a picture for us. First, he wants us to see what real humility looks like. And this, without question, is the greatest act of humility ever. And secondly, he wants us to know what unity looks like. Because unity is the kind of unity that lives to put others before ourselves. Which brings us to verses 9 to 11, which are referred to the ascent because we see the result of Jesus' humble obedience and service. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name. And at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Following Jesus' humility and obedience, God the Father exalted him to his rightful position of honour and glory. Through the miracle of being resurrected from death, God gave new honour to the obedient, humble son. And notice in verse 9, God gave Jesus a name above every name. 
we saw in the Genesis passage that man in Babel tried to build a name for himself. But humble obedience shown by Jesus resulted in being exalted to the most significant place of honour. So much so that every knee will bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And this wasn't a prideful act. We can see that in verse 11. Jesus did this to bring glory to God the Father. It wasn't for a personal ambition on Jesus' part, but to bring glory to God. Friends, humility can be superficial. It can be a mask for pride. It can be pretense for selflessness. But I would encourage us all, let us be known as a gathering that is united around Christ. A gathering that is others-focused. gathering that's able to put aside the differences and through humility come together to be partners in the gospel. A gathering that if believers were to visit, even from the other end of the earth, they would comfortably say with joy, our friends of Tea Tree Gully, they are selfless and like family. And let us display unity through humility that shows the world what sort of person Christ is. As Christians were called to be united, the secret ingredient needed for sustained unity is humility. Christ's example of humility is the gold standard. Let's use that to challenge ourselves as believers to live in unselfish unity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the reality of who Jesus is, the realisation of what he gave up to become man, to be humbled into death for each and every one of us. Thank you for your grace and love that you show to us through Jesus. And thank you that Jesus is reigning over all things, that we can trust in him, and that we have acceptance to you because of his sacrifice. I pray that you will keep us looking towards you. You will encourage us as your body, convict us and help us to be humble to one another, to maintain unity as believers, and that we'll use Jesus as our example of what humble service looks like. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.